Welcome to the News Items Podcast. As our regular listeners know, we post episodes every Monday through Thursday afternoon. But on some Fridays, like today, we release one of our interviews in its entirety, unedited, warts and all, for you to hear. Today, it's an interview with journalist Chris Isham. Chris and I went to college together many, many years ago. Uh, In his professional life, Chris has been the head of the investigative unit at ABC News for 13 years. He was the Washington bureau chief of CBS News and retired at the end of last year and has since then been working on a documentary, researching and reporting out a documentary on what happened in Wuhan. Chris is an extraordinary journalist. Um, if you had, if people had listened to him after the first World Trade Center bombing, uh, we would have taken Osama bin Laden a lot more seriously than we did. Um, so I'm looking forward to the final results of the Wuhan investigation. Um, why don't we start, Chris, with the basic details, 135 million people have been infected and close to 3 million, uh, probably 3 million now, uh, dead. And yet we still don't know the origin of the virus. Uh, and there are a lot of people who think that the official story is not correct. Let's put it mildly. Chris, just to start, what, what's the general state of knowledge on the outbreak of the coronavirus? Well, John, I mean, as you pointed out, we're more than a year into this virus, and we still don't know where it came from. And it's absolutely critical to understand where it came from uh, in order to try to prevent it from happening again. Uh, there has been a WHO Chinese investigation, uh, but that created more questions uh, than answers. And at this point, I think there is a real need for a real uh, independent, transparent investigation. Um, there are four theories uh, that the WHO has put forward as to how the virus got to us. Um, first is animal to human. Second is animal to human via an intermediate host like minks. Uh, Third is introduced via frozen foods uh, from the outside, not from China, but from outside of China, which is, as you probably know, one of China's favorites. Um, And finally, uh, there's the lab leak, uh, which has been much derided by some in the scientific community and many in the U.S. press. Um, But I'd like you, if you would, to take us through each of the four. So uh, just kind of a couple of broad points. Um, It's important to keep in mind why we need to know um, what the origin of this virus was, um, because it's essential, as Tony Blinken said yesterday, um, to uh, know what the source was in order to prevent another pandemic, which could be even worse, possibly. Uh, in the future. So uh, without knowing where this thing came from, uh, it's going to be very hard to take the correct steps to make sure that it doesn't happen together. Again, whether that was from a lab or whether it was from a zoonotic from an animal. Um, And the other thing, just quickly on a general point, is I think 
this whole debate has been really infected with politics. And ever since Donald Trump came out last April and, and did blame the Chinese and blame the lab, um, there was a reaction against that. And so m- much of the discussion here has been, uh, has been tinged with politics. And, and I think it's, re- it's a real need right now for there to be a bipartisan and an international effort uh, to get to the bottom of this. This is not about politics. This is about the future uh, of our health um, and our economies and, and the planet, frankly. Um, so I think it's, it's really essential that, that everybody gets together on this and, and tries to come to a dispassionate understanding of what happened. So um, you mentioned the four, the four basic theories which were put forward by the WHO report, which came out at the end of <clears throat> end of last month, following um, a, a several months of uh, of investigation, um, including uh, several weeks in China itself after long negotiations, um, and and it really one one needs to say that this was not a WHO investigation; it was a joint WHO Chinese investigation. So everything the Chinese. Uh, had veto power over who was on the WHO team and uh, had uh, control over what was finally stated. So they had to, they had to thread the needle there. Um, and, uh, and they came out with this report, which ranges from uh, extremely unlikely, which is what they felt that the lab leak was, to uh, likely to very likely, which was uh, via the intermediate host, your second theory. So let, let's just kind of quickly go through it. The, f- the first one was um, a direct spillover from an animal to human beings. Um, the uh, COVID-19 is closest to uh, some previous viruses that we've seen, uh, namely SARS and MERS, um, which appeared in the 2000s. Um, the... Um, it, it's it the the it's quite likely that the what's called the reservoir host or the original host uh, of this virus were bats, <clears throat> quite likely in southern China, um, and it's you know it's possible that a a virus in a bat could spread directly to a human being, but it's not that easy. Uh, <clears throat> most bat viruses are not adapted to human beings, and uh, the other thing is that if it had um, spread from a bat <clears throat> in southern China to a human being in southern China, you would think you'd have a, you'd have clusters of, of infections uh, in the south. So um, the second, um, you know, the second theory, which is uh, quite a bit more likely, is that it would spread from, say, a bat to an intermediate host and then to human beings. And this is what happened with SARS-1 in 2002 and with MERS. In the case of SARS-1, it went from a bat to a civet cat and then to human beings. In the case of MERS, it went from a bat um, to a camel and then to human beings. So, um, you know, that's the, and that is considered uh, by many scientists as the most likely scenario for COVID-19. Um, the only problem with that is that they have yet to identify an animal that would have been the intermediate host. More than 80,000 animals in China have been tested and none of them uh, had the virus. Um, so 
you know, it, it's still possible that that's the way it was transmitted and that's where it came from. But so far, we haven't seen the evidence of that. Uh, regardless, that is considered the most likely uh, scenario by the WHO Chinese report. Uh, the third uh, theory is that it was transmitted via frozen foods, as you mentioned. Um, this is a favorite of the Chinese government. Um, and uh, uh, for obvious reasons, as you pointed out, uh, somehow it came from uh, you know, outside China and was transmitted through fro frozen foods and then consumed inside China. Very unlikely, um, even though the WHO report um, categorized it as possible. Uh, very little evidence that uh, that it could be trans that the virus could be carried via frozen foods. Uh, in fact, uh, recent 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 data indicates that that even uh, that it's very difficult to transmit uh, via surfaces at all. So uh, I think that theory we should put on the back burner. Um, and then the last one is the lab leak, and um, this is this theory is basically that somehow uh, a um, samples that were being studied in Wuhan, which is where the outbreak first surfaced, uh, in some way uh, infected uh, a technician or a lab worker and then spread to the community that way. Um, the evidence that supports this um, is, uh, as, as is the evidence for all of these theories, by the way, very circumstantial um, at this point. But uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology was the geopolitical, uh, geo, basically the geological epicenter of uh, the study of bat coronaviruses. So, uh, you know, you, you, uh, you have a coincidence there that you have a lab that is studying literally thousands of samples of viruses. Uh, and that is the within, you know, miles of where the original outbreak occurred. Now it's possible it's just a coincidence, um, but there are a number of, uh, of interesting uh, points of reference on that, and I think a number of these have been brought to uh, the attention of the WHO and the international community, and uh, um, the point is that uh, I think there's a view that this, the lab leak, which was initially dismissed as a conspiracy theory, um, by nuts uh, is something that should be taken seriously. And increasingly, there are an increasing number of scientists who believe that, at a minimum, um, we ought to take this, this theory seriously. I have um, a couple of paragraphs here from the MIT Tech Review which address the lab leak issue. There's a professor at Flinders University in Australia named Nikolai Petrovsky, uh, who was also a founder and chairman of a company called Vaccine, V-A-X-I-N-E, that develops immunizations for infectious diseases. Um, he's received tens of millions of dollars in funding from the U.S. National Institute of Health, NIH, to support the development of vaccines and compounds called adjuvants that boost their effects. And after Chinese scientists posted a draft genome of the novel uh, corona, coronavirus SARS-CoV-2, the disease culprit in Wuhan, Petrovsky, who by this time uh, had decided that he was going to focus on nothing else, uh, sat down to his computer and did modeling studies of the viral sequence. This generated a startling result. The spike protein studying SARS-CoV-2 
COV2, bound more tightly to their human cell receptor, a protein called ACE2, that target receptors on any other species evaluated. In other words, SARS-CoV-2 was surprisingly well adapted to its human prey, which is unusual for a newly emerging pathogen. And as he said, holy shit, that's really weird. Well, yeah, Petrovsky is on to something there. It, it, the um, SARS-CoV-2 has what's called a furin cleavage site, which is uh, in, in the spike protein that, that allows it to adapt very quickly uh, to human cells. Um, one of the distinguishing characteristics of SARS-CoV-2 is that it is highly transmissible, as obviously we have, we ha- as we have seen, much more transmissible. The first SARS was, uh, was interestingly more deadly, but nowhere near as, as transmissible or infectious. So this virus uh, has the capacity to spread in ways that we simply haven't seen uh, with other similar kinds of viruses, which is another indication that it, it, it could have been altered in some way or genetically engineered. Um, <clears throat> I think it's, uh, you know, one of the uh, issues that, that a number of scientists are looking at with the Wuhan Institute is the, the kind of research that it was conducting. It's called gain-of-function of, of research. Essentially what this means is you, you take viruses that are not in themselves terribly infectious and making them more infectious, making them more uh, uh, transmissible. Um, modifying their genetic structure uh, to allow them to become uh, more infectious to human beings. Uh, the, the reason for this is, is to uh, try to predict what could happen in nature and to, um, uh, and, and to um, uh, potentially develop vaccines that could combat them. Uh, but it's very, very risky kind of research, and, and it's been shut down in this country before. It's very controversial, and I think there needs to be a debate about it. I think it was on uh, late January, maybe late February, that uh, the Lancet, um, I guess it was February 19th, it says here, uh, that the Lancet uh, published an article that basically said uh, that anybody who puts forward the idea that it was a lab leak is sort of a crazy conspiracist. Um, where Where is that coming from? What, why the uh, vehemence of uh, critics of the lab leak theory? Well, this was, um, this was a product of, um, uh, of a, a, a very concerted campaign uh, led uh, by a fellow by the name of Peter Daszak, who runs uh, something called the Eco Health Alliance, the nonprofit out of New York, um, that um, that was actually involved directly in funding uh, much of this uh, gain of function research. The gain of the, the U.S. government through the NIH and the Department of Defense has been involved in the past in funding of gain of function research at the Wuhan Institute. I mean, it's. Uh, it's quite extraordinary when you actually think about it. Um, and, and Mr. Dasek was the, the, the intermediary. He was the one who was involved in, in channeling those funds. So he, uh, he has an interest in um, 
uh, in you know providing a a, a counter narrative to the idea this could have come out of that lab um, for obvious reasons. He was also uh, the U.S. representative on the WHO team, which uh, caused a lot of people to say that, the, that, that it was a conflicted, that he had a, a major conflict there. And uh, the other, uh, I guess, institution, if you will, that has been... Um vehement in its scorn for the lab leak theory has been uh, what we might call the mainstream news media. Um, is that simply a function of if Trump does it, it's bad, or if Trump says it, it's bad, or is that part of the lobbying campaign? I think uh, that's part of it. I, I, I think I would point out that there have been a number of media organizations that have done some terrific work. New York Magazine did a very long, in-depth report um, their MIT um, review you mentioned has done some terrific work. Uh, recently, 60 Minutes did a very solid report that gave both sides of the story. Um, you know, so I, I think Newsweek has done some very good reporting on this. Um, the Washington Post did two very long editorials that were very well researched. So I think that uh, I think you're right on the whole. The mainstream media has. Uh, I think it's sided with the orthodoxy here, but um, but there has been some terrific work in in the media. And what in terms of the work that you're doing, um, where are you on that? Are you are you halfway through? Or are you? Well, I've been talking to sources and developing sources. The um, uh, the you know the key here, uh, both from an investigative point of view, um, and and from the point of view of, of developing a documentary would be to um, develop some original sources who were, um, you know, working in the lab or had direct knowledge uh, of the very early outbreaks. Um, and, uh, and that's tough because, uh, as you know, China is, um, is, is a very tough environment to work in and, and families can be threatened and, um, People disappear or detained, uh, so it's a it's a dangerous environment um, for people to come forward uh, and and talk about this kind of thing. In Washington, I guess first and foremost amongst those who doubted the uh, bat to human uh, angle uh, was Matt Pottinger at the uh, National Security Council. Um, I, I was back and forth with Tom Cotton a lot in January about what was, what, you know, what had actually happened, if you will. Um, and he too was very skeptical and, and it said to me that he had, uh, been briefed, uh, by a lot of different sources in the U S government. Um, I wonder what, if you could give us like the timeline or, uh, sort of the narrative of uh, the coronavirus hits and the U.S. government, the Trump administration, not Trump himself, but the National Security Council led by Pottinger, what, what, how they reacted, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think Matt uh, was one of the first people inside the administration uh, who, first of all, recognized just how dangerous this virus was back, um, you know, in, in early 2020. Uh, 
part of that is because Matt was actually a reporter for the Wall Street Journal uh, in 2002 when, when SARS broke out and uh, had uh, um, you know, direct exposure to, to that virus. And so he, he had a number of sources in China um, from his work at the Journal. Uh, since then, he actually went into the U.S. Marines after 9-11 and, and fought in, uh, in, in Afghanistan uh, and then went into the government. But uh, so he's had an interesting career, but he speaks fluent Mandarin and uh, he is uh, well, well aware of, of the, uh, um, of, of, you know, the way the Chinese government, Chinese Communist Party has, has approached uh, these problems. And he was able to call a number of his contacts in the health community and uh, learned very early on that this was a very dangerous virus and had human-to-human transmissibility, despite the fact that Chinese were denying that at that point up until January the 20th. Um, And uh, he knew that this was going to be a big challenge. So fast forward, Matt has taken an interest um, while he was in the administration in, you know, not only um, making sure that the U.S. government was approaching this with the, the full assets it needed, but also trying to understand what the origins were. Um, par- a parallel effort was being undertaken at the State Department um, under Pompeo, um, and they launched a, an investigation that was led by David Asher, who is a very talented investigator, um, who um, was able to um, declassify a number of the conclusions of that investigation. Uh, which led to a fact sheet being put out on uh, January uh, the 15th of this year, 2021, just before uh, the Trump administration left office. So and in that fact sheet, there were two major points. One was that the uh, intelligence indicated that there was a cluster of, of sickness um, that, was, um, that broke out in Wuhan in, um, earlier in the fall of 2019, uh, the Chinese have stated that they believe the first um, infection was uh, in December the 8th. Um, U.S. intelligence that was declassified indicates that actually uh, there, were, there were at least two technicians that were infected with very similar um, symptoms in uh, early November of 2019. Uh, and that led to a cluster of illnesses around those two technicians family members, etc. So that's very important to get to the bottom of. The second point that they made in that declassified fact sheet was that, um, that the uh, U.S. military, sorry, the, the Chinese military, the PLA, uh, was working with the Wuhan Institute of Virology on specifically on gain-of-function research. This is obviously potentially very important because it could indicate that the uh, Chinese government was was working in a clandestine way um, to uh, research uh, possible pathogens that could be used in in a biological warfare uh, program. So we're, I mean, if you think about uh, genetic modification of pathogens, um, you know, we're given CRISPR and given our ability to, uh, our ever-expanding ability to manipulate uh, these structures, 
and turn them into weapons. What? How does that stop? What? What is the? Is there an international committee that's set up and looks at each other's research? And I, I'm not quite sure how we, as as you know, people on the planet, um, can right. can avoid uh, a lab. Even a lab leak would be right. catastrophic if if the uh, pathogen was. Uh, modified in such a way that it sort of couldn't be stopped. Right, right. I think this is a hugely important issue. Um, there needs to be uh, international an international effort on this. Uh, there needs to be an international control, possibly along the lines of the IAEA, which regulates uh, nuclear proliferation, which has done an extremely good job over the years of containing nuclear uh, proliferators. Um and and does have uh, excellent surveillance capabilities, uh, and it's something that um, you know is a. It's I think it could be a model uh, for this kind of of research because you're right. I think the this is this is a uh, uh, we're, we're we're entering into a whole new world when you can genetically modify, create pathogens that could be spread uh, across the planet. Um, either accidentally or deliberately, uh, you're, uh, you know, you're, we're facing a, a potential threat um, that could make uh, um, even nuclear war uh, look tame. We do have a, we do have a uh, precedent in D.A. Henderson led the global effort to eradicate smallpox from the face of the earth, which was after I think 20 years was successful and the last known uh, samples of smallpox exist now, I guess, at the CDC in Atlanta, or is it Fort Derrick? I can't remember. But also in uh, what used to be called the Soviet Union is now Russia. So we have uh, effectively uh, worked together as a as an international community to reduce uh samples basically to two labs, one in the United States, one in, in Russia. Um, the problem, I guess, is that uh, that was in a sort of bipolar world. In a multipolar world, um, it's much harder. Um, and WHO and UN don't seem to have the kind of uh, command, the kind of respect that would lead people to lead governments to go along. Um, it's terrifying, I think. Yeah. It really yeah. is. Yeah, I mean, I think the other problem is, um, you know, smallpox, as dangerous as it was, was one pathogen, right? So you, you're now dealing with uh, literally thousands of potential pathogens that could be created by men. Um, and, uh, that's, that's what makes this so different, I think. And, uh, and so potentially scary because they, you know, the, the, um, uh, potential for, uh, for creating, uh, new kinds of pathogens, uh, that, that infect human beings in different ways, um, uh, and attack their systems in different ways, uh, is limitless. I think the, the, the database uh, at the Wuhan Institute of Virology contained thousands of samples of, of genetic sequences. Um, and um, that's one of the, one of the key pieces of data that, uh, that 
we really need to see uh, to understand what what viruses they were researching and whether any of them match uh, COVID nineteen, and that the, that 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 information was taken offline in late uh, uh, two thousand nineteen and has not been made available to researchers. That's one of the the key items that uh, that that um, individuals have you know who have been trying to understand what happened here uh, have been have been saying really needs to be uh, needs to be exposed. One of the things that was interesting, I read I read an interview with a scientist um, on the subject, and he said the the first SARS uh, outbreak was it brought together scientists from. Uh, from Asia and from the U.S., and he said it was scientist to scientist talking about scientific matters, and that the level of cooperation and so on and so forth was, uh, you know, as good as you could hope. Um, this one, the scientist to scientist talking about scientific matters, is completely off the table. That's not happening. China will not allow this to happen. Um, and I guess the my question is about the WHO. What did they, you know, they were there, what, 16 months or 15 months after the outbreak, uh, which would seem to be about 14 and a half months too late. But what, do you know what they, how they conducted the investigation? I mean. Well, they, they interviewed, uh, they interviewed scientists, but they were, those interviews were done in highly controlled environments with minders uh, and uh, with a, a set uh, of questions that, that were agreed upon. So it was, uh, and, and they essentially, the, the team essentially had to take the word uh, of the, the scientists, all of whom were obviously approved by the Communist Party, um, and, uh, and, and, and kind of leave it at that. They, they were not allowed to see any raw data. So for example, uh, the team would, would, uh, would research, would, would indicate that they had information that perhaps there had been an earlier outbreak and they wanted to see the health records. Uh, those records were not made available. Uh, the, they were not able to see the, the databases in the labs. Um, so there was a lot of, a lot of raw data that simply was not made available to them. And, and the WHO, even the director general of the WHO, uh, admitted after they came out with their report that, that it was flawed, uh, and that the, uh, the lab leak theory, uh, needed to, to be more fully examined. Let's, let's, uh, take it up to the present day. What, what is the government, the Biden administration's view of this and what, what are they doing? What are they demanding? What are they, what do they want to know? Um, when the WHO report came out, uh, Blinken, I think was the first to say, basically take a gigantic bucket of cold water and throw it all over them. Um, but you followed this very closely. Where, where's the administration at? Well, I think they're, you know, they've, they've said the right things. They've expressed skepticism of the WHO investigation from the beginning, uh, which I think is appropriate. They, uh, they, they uh, put together a group of, uh, of 14 uh, countries, uh, mostly democracies uh, around the world that uh, also um, um, called for a more independent and transparent investigation. Uh, so they've, they're on record as uh, asking for uh, 
a new investigation that would be um, thorough and that would begin to really examine all the evidence in a dispassionate way. We'll see if that happens. Uh, I think that's a that's it's a it's a it's a very um, honorable. Uh, statement, and I think it's important that the administration get on record as asking for that. I personally think that it's um, going to be very hard for the WHO to to mount a more thorough investigation that gets to the kind of data uh, that we'd really need to see to have a, a really independent and fully transparent investigation. You've obviously talked to a lot of scientists. Um, what 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 are two or three of them telling you? I think the, I mean, one of the scientists who is most respected in this area is a microbiologist at Stanford, David Relman. Um, and, you know, he's, uh, he says that, uh, that these theories, they just need to be examined uh, fully. Uh, and that so far, it, it, um, the evidence has not been strong enough to support any of these theories because uh, there's so much that's not known. Uh, and I think that's kind of where, that's to take a position really on any side at this point is simply too early, uh, given the, the really paucity uh, of real data. So uh, now there's, there are a lot of scientists who have taken positions on one side or the other. Um, but again, that's, it's, it's uh, you know, without, without the really underlying data, it's, it's very hard to to come to any kind of conclusive, um, uh, any kind of any any kind of solid conclusion on this, um, where, how much left do you have to go before before you can put this on the screen, so to speak? Well, it's a you know this is a long project. I think that uh, one of the things, as I said, I think that the key piece uh, for me would be to um, find a a, a a source uh, of who is close to what actually happened either in that lab or in the early outbreaks uh, in China. And that, that, that's going to, that's, that's a, that's a challenge. I, I think that um, on a broader sense, what I'd really like to see is short of, of the Chinese agreeing to a, a full and uh, independent investigation, there should be a, um, international effort uh, that perhaps with the you know the 14 countries that signed the statement, um, y- you know, using all of an all of government approach, using law enforcement t- tools, using intelligence tools, uh, using open source information, creating uh, incentives uh, for whistleblowers, uh, perhaps uh, financial rewards, um, you know just using every single tool that we have at our disposal is such an important issue to get to the bottom of that any one country is going to have a hard time doing it. But if we could join with other countries and, uh, and use their assets and their sources and their techniques um, along with ours and our incredible SIGINT capabilities, uh, I think that we might have a shot at, at getting uh, getting information that, uh, that could help us uh, move the ball down the field on this. Well, we've taken uh, a lot of your time, uh, but it's been a terrific uh, and really informative uh, interview, and we thank you very much for doing the podcast today. 
I enjoyed it. Great talking with you, John. John Ellis here again. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in again Mondays through Thursdays for our regular episodes where Rebecca and I discuss geopolitics, finance, science, and technology.